Episode 6 of the Water Break Podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. This episode, we're going to discuss wastewater laboratory operations with Tony Glimp Martin. You may have heard of her books, A Wastewater Microbiology Laboratory Manual for Operators, and Wastewater Microbiology, A Handbook for Operators. Tony is a wastewater microbiologist and certified operator B-level with 40 plus years experience in wastewater. I am personally a, a microbial enthusiast, so I'm very excited to have this opportunity to talk with you about this as a lot of operators uh, who I've met that are going to be reluctant to look under the microscope, but might change their mind after <laughs> talking with you today, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, remember, you'll also want to stay tuned for our Wanda's Water tidbit at the end of our program, where we share fun and quirky trivia or information on water. Okay. So Tony, my first question to you is, why do you think people are intimidated when looking under a microscope or by looking at a microscope? Well, first of all, it's science. <laughs> so a lot of people are just kind of intimidated by science. And then if you think about it, our operators aren't trained microbiologists. So to look at a microscope, it seems like, you know, kind of out of their comfort zone. But what I try to do is make it really simple for them. That's awesome because I've known I've operated a microscope in my younger years and broke a slide once by <laughs> ratcheting it up too high. <laughs> <laughs> what I love in your book, you said you're not looking for absolutes, but trends. What does that mean? Well, absolutely. I mean, think about it. We're taking a drop or two, several drops of water out of billions and billions of drops. So it's no way we're going to know absolutely how many microorganisms are in that system. So um, if you continue to do everything the same way, then if we see an increase in numbers, then we can probably assume that the numbers are increasing in our system. So we don't care about the absolute number. We just want to know if it's a, a trending up or if it's trending down. If I use four drops today, today and I got a count and then I use two drops tomorrow and then I go, oh my God, my number dropped. Well, no, you yeah. just use less sample. So you want to be consistent with the, just the trend. When I'm with the operators and we're looking under the microscope, they're like, I have no idea what I'm looking at. I'm like, but if you keep looking at it, you'll start recognizing it. And you don't have to know the names of the, of the microorganisms. Just get, you know, get familiar with what you, what's good under your microscope. And if your system is running great, and just kind of pay attention to what you're seeing during that time. And then that, let that be your benchmark. I love that because they're like, yeah, we have a wiggly thing. I'm like, that's perfect. Yeah, I know. That's perfect. <laughs> you know? All right, look, when I, first start, when I first started, I didn't know that these microorganisms had names. I gave them my own names. And like the spir uh, spiralis natans, it's a, kind of a curly uh, filament. I just called it curly. And so I gave them all their own names. And to my disappointment, they had technical names. So, But I like that better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do, too. The one that got me, though, they're like, I have a, a one that looks like a stingray flappy thing. And I'm like, take video. I know I've had pineapples. I got a pineapple in my in here. You know, I've got a sperm. Oh, <laughs> oh my. I got several little sperms. Well, probably <laughs> not sperm, but probably flagellates. Yeah, that's how they name them. So personally naming them is OK until you know the names. <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah. Uh, I love that. One of the number one questions I get asked, though, is what kind of microscope would you recommend? 
especially those who are, you know, just learning, they're not going to want to spend three grand on, you know, a really sexy microscope. What should they have in the field or in their offices? Some of the worst microscopes I've ever seen were some operators' microscopes. And I've seen them with flashlights to the light source, but we want oh. something a little bit better than that. So at a minimum, you want to try to get phase contrast. Most microscopes come, they're already bright field, but you want you want phase contrast because phase contrast makes the difference between the microorganism and the water more distinct. You want at least, you want a 10, you don't have to have a 20 and a 40X objective, but at least a, a 20 or a 40. And then you want to have an oil immersion lens, which is the 100x object. Okay, so for the rest of us, that's like a 20x, 40x, and then oil. Right. Okay, because yeah, some of them come with four or five different, you know, lenses on it, and you're like, which one? Which one do I use? <laughs> which yeah, one do well, I like? Well, you you should look at a kind of a, you need a low power one, and you need a mid a medium power one, and then you need a high power one. So the low can be the 10. The medium can be the 20 or the 40, and then the high power, the 100. So do you have a preferred slide or cover? Use glass, plastic? Oh, please use glass. Plastic, it just is too much interference when you look through. But just a regular standard uh, slides. They, it's a standard slide. Don't get the ones with the little uh, drop in the middle or hanging drop. Just get a standard flat slide. If you can get slides that are pre-cleaned, that would be best because a lot of times they come with a waxy coating and the, and the, and the liquid beads up on it. So you want to get a pre-cleaned. So if you want to do smears, you can smear it across. And then you want to use glass, I mean, glass cover slips. So standard glass cover slips. You can use any size, but whatever size you use, always use the same size. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable with it because the glass is so thin. Yeah. You know, it, <laughs> the cup, you're like, I'm going to break this the moment I touch it. Yeah, you, you miss so much detail, though, when you start looking through plastic because it's just not as clear as your as your glass. But I just just be careful. But I recommend glass. Okay. A lot of people, they just want to throw a slide on, but, you know, are there other reagents that you're going to recommend? Are there other things that we should have in our toolkit other than just a slide and a cover slip? Well, you should have some disposable pipettes and you want to uh, at least have disposable pipettes, slides, cover slips, and you want to have uh, a gram stain. That's like the bare minimum, just a gram stain. And if you want to just go get a little bit more fancy, you can get the India ink stain. But at a bare minimum, you want your slides, your cover slip, your uh, pipettes, your gram stain, and you want some immersion oil because with your 100X objective, that's an oil immersion lens. So that one, mm -hmm. you have to use oil with that lens. Do you recommend reusing the slides or should we just like you know, rinse them off with DI water or are you saying just get new ones? No, I, I, I don't recommend reusing the cover slips, but you can wash the slides if you want to wash the slides. But a lot of times if you, I would wash them. You can wash them if you're just doing a, a wet mount, looking at it wet. But if you're going to smear it and let it dry, I wouldn't wash those. Okay. But you can save you can save those. That's like a history of what happened that day. Oh, yeah. And put the name, date, time, date. Yeah. I guess the next big question then is where should I grab my sample from? I mean, there's so many parts in an activated sludge plant. Lagoon's a little easier. There's an inlet and the F, you know, an effluent. Well, you should always... Uh, grab your sample from the discharge end of the aeration basin. So you want to grab it when 
most of the process in your aeration basin is complete right before it goes into the secondary clarifier. And you should always collect it at the same at the same location every time. Because you want you 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 want to compare apples to apples. Because if you think about it, where these systems it's just millions and millions and millions of different microbes. And so as much as you can keep consistent, the better. So if you can be consistent with the time, if you can be consistent with the location, you even be consistent with how many, how much volume of sample you use. I always use four drops. Always use four drops. Always use collect the sample from the same location. Always collect the sample around the same time of the day. One of my thoughts is that if I'm consistent, whether right or wrong, it's easier mm -hmm. to fix. Right, right. Than if I'm sporadic. <laughs> right, because you don't know where the where the error is. So just be consistent. That's the main thing. I have literally had you know operators in the middle of something jump up and go, "I got to get my sample right now." In the middle of a you know conversation issues and stuff like that. And I'm like, that's cool. Do it. <laughs> I'm not yeah. offended by that. Yeah. If you yeah, just be as consistent as possible. I even go so far as I mark my slides, a uh, two centimeter area on my slide and I mark it with wax, um, like a wax pencil. Uh -huh. And, and that's the area that I contain my, my sample. So not only am I putting a consistent volume, but I'm a consistent area on the slide that's covered. So as much as you can do that's consistent, because some people just put it on the slide, slap a cover slip on it, you have different volumes, and then when you scan it, you're looking all over the slide trying to find stuff. So you can keep it contained in a consistent area, consistent volume, then you, 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 you're better at you're comparing more apples to apples. Yeah. The, the slapdash methodology you're talking about reminds me of my college microbiology teacher. I struggled. <laughs> like, Give me numbers. I can do numbers. I don't know what a splash is. You know? Yeah. So yeah. No, just consistent volume, consistent area. Well, what other data should I look at? I mean, should I compare this to certain operational data, or you want you know, Is this yeah. on its own? No, you want you want to look at everything in that plant that can affect the microbe. So you want to look at the oxygen. You want to look at your sludge age because that affects them. You want to look at your influent loading. You want to look at your pH. You want to look at your temperature. So if you can make sure you look at those things. And you want to look at your F to M, your food to microorganism ratio. So those mm -hmm. are the things you want to track along with all of this microbial data. I'm just thinking there's a lot of people who are going to go, oh, crap, more data. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a, lot, a lot of this stuff they should be they should be collecting anyway. You should be collecting mm -hmm. your influent loading. You should be collecting your influent pH. Most permits require that. You should be collecting your temperature. It's not adding any additional work. Got it. So in general, what are we looking for under the microscope? Okay, so now that depends on how much time you have. <laughs> Okay. I was fortunate. I that was all I did all day long. So I can look at everything. But mm -hmm. depending on how much time you go, so the simple thing to do is look at the flock and I will look at color. If it's a nice brown healthy flock, that's good. The the whiter it is, the more trouble you are in. The more starved the bugs is or the lower your FDM. So can think about that. I would look okay. for any bacteria that's hanging out in the fluid surrounding the flock. That fluid should be clear. So that's a quick thing you can look at. And if you see a lot of bacteria, that's dispersed? Yeah, if you see a lot of dispersed bacteria just kind of hanging out in the fluid, something's wrong. Because the, the most of your 
But when you collect that sample from the discharge end of your aeration basin, most of your bacteria should have been clumped and formed flock. And the, mm-hmm. the dispersed bacteria should have been removed by healthy uh, ciliates. So if you've got a bunch of dispersed bacteria in the fluid, that means that something came and knocked out my ciliates and they're not doing their job. Or that you've got a slug load of food that came in that made the bacteria begin to multiply all over again. And then mm-hmm. you don't want that either because that means your BLD numbers are going to be high. You, you want to look at that. And then protozoan counts, metazoan counts, that can be, take a little bit more time. So if, especially if you try to put them in categories, a quick thing to do is just count everything. Do a total count, total protozoa count. And then if, if that number drops drastically, you know, something hit you and knocked your, your microorganisms out. So it kind of really depends on how much time you have. I see a lot of charts when we go to visit <laughs> operators that they have on the wall. It says this is protozoa and this is metazoa, <laughs> sponsored by all sorts of you know companies. And like when you're doing a total count, do I, so I don't care if it fits this protozoa demographic right. or this metazoan demographic. You know, I don't care if it has legs or right. Just whatever, <laughs> whatever's moving in there, count it. Got I it. mean, that's that's just a short thing. If you want to, do, if you know, if you want to do it. If you don't have time to differentiate between amoebas, flagellates, free swimming, crawling, stalk, you know, and then your rotifers, nematodes, your, all your metazoans. So if you don't have that time, and a lot of people just don't then you can at least just look at a protozoan count because if it's healthy, nothing's impacting your system, you should see an abundance of those. And then if all of a sudden it drops, then something is wrong. Okay, so what about filament bacteria then? You can look at that, but the, that will be best looked at if you do when you do a stain. So you do a smear, you do a stain, and then you can look at your filaments. And I, that's something too I would also observe. If you see a lot of those in there, if you want to count them, that can be kind of tedious if you're not used to it. But um, I would just take note that it's like I have a lot or is it getting worse or if it's getting better. Uh, so that's just a quick observation that you can do. Yeah. Does it look like a spaghetti bowl? Yeah. Or is there none? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's those extreme ends too. And when you're talking about a smear, what is a smear? Okay, what a smear is, is, is your, when you take your sample, you put the same number of drops on the slide that you would if you were just looking at it. So you mm-hmm. want everything always consistent, and then you smear it across. That's why I like that, that defined area. So you would smear it within that defined area, and then um, let it dry. And then that's the slide that you would do a stain on, because the stain enables you to see the filaments a lot better. So, I mean, we're talking about the stains, but there's Gram and there's India ink. And <laughs> what is the difference between yeah. them? Yeah, you know, there's Gram, India ink, Nizer, PHB, a whole bunch of different ones. But for, for, just for, for the operator, a Gram stain is specifically for distinguishing two different types of bacteria. Those are Gram positive, those are Gram negative. The flock formers, the ones that we want, are gram negative. So if you start seeing some gram positive things in there, then that's you don't want too much gram positive in there. But the gram stain is used to help you see the, the filamentous bacteria better. Mm-hmm. And so that's that that would be the one reason why you would have the gram stain. The India ink stain is used to you can stain the extracellular lipopolysaccharides. So those are the that's that's the slime that's produced when bacteria are starved. And it's a slime that's produced when they don't have enough nutrients, or it's also can be a slime that they produce when they're under stress for other reasons. 
But mm-hmm. you can do that if you just want to, but you can literally just look at the color of your flock and see the same thing. If your flock goes from brown to white, if you do an Indian ink stain, you'll see that it's a positive Indian ink stain. So you can see the same thing by just looking at the color of the flock. Do you have any antidotes that go with the experiences with this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember I got called for a, a plant uh, at this plant, and I won't name the names, but they had uh, just tremendous amount of this slime in their plant, and they were so bad that they couldn't even dewater their uh, sludge, and so mm-hmm. they were they were getting fussed at because telling them that they weren't they didn't know what they were doing, but it turned mm-hmm. out that they had this huge industry in town who was about 65% of their flow that had two SBRs that were slime producing machines. Uh, and so these, they it was an industry with no nutrients. And so uh-huh. they were severely nutrient deficient and it was producing just slime and it was sending it down to the wastewater treatment plant. And it was nothing they could do because it was coming into their plant. And so they, we, we went in and we looked, we double checked, the wastewater plant, make sure that they had sufficient nutrients in their incoming wastewater. And so mm-hmm. we ended up having to work with the industry to say, hey, guys, you guys are producing slime. You really need to, you know, supplement with some nutrients. And they did. And eventually, after about two years, <laughs> it cleared up. But you I did get it in the ink stain and you saw nothing but just big white blobs of just slime, just total uh, whiteness. Ugh. You almost had to have sunglasses to look at the slide. It was so bright. <laughs> you know, I have actually looked at a uh, from a different industry, a food industry, where their foam just looked like uh, mayonnaise. Yeah. So a lot, that's, a lot of people don't realize that they every time they get foam, they think, oh, my God, I got filaments. But they don't realize that this, extra, this, this extracellular polymer creates foam, and it looks just like a nice creamy white mirrors. It's a very stable, slimy foam. They were like, we don't know what's wrong. I'm all, oh, uh, mm-hmm. you should not have mayonnaise, for one thing, <laughs> in this. So let's talk about, you know, that's when we talk about the nutrients and stuff like that. But I, I was like, I'm actually impressed. I've never seen it this extreme. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Yeah, yeah, it can get pretty bad. Can you walk us through what they do when they have samples? Like, you know, mm-hmm. like from beginning to end, what, what should I, my process be? So on a typical day, as soon as you get your sample, first of all, make sure you grab the sample right when you're ready to look at it. Don't grab it five hours early and then look at it later. So as soon as you get mm-hmm. your sample, the first thing you're going to want to do is to split it and split it and take, mix it well and split it. And you want to do a mixed liquid suspend, follow suspended solids on the sample that you're looking at because you want to know the concentration of the sample that you're looking at. You don't want to look back at their data and see what their uh, volatile spinning solids numbers was earlier that day. You want to know the concentration of your sample. So that's the first thing you do. You split the sample and send it off for suspended solid. And then I would take and make take two slides and make smears and set those aside and let them dry. Because you want to do things in duplicates or triplicates so you can do an average. And so I would make my smears, set those aside so that those can dry. And then that afternoon, okay. I'd come in and stain them. And then I'd take and make my wet mounts, which is simply putting a drop on, same number of drops on the slide with a cover slip, and then, then doing the general observation. And then later that afternoon, once the uh, 
slides dry, I'd stain it with my gram stain and then take a look at it and see if there's a, a, an abundance of filaments. And I, I think looking at the stain slide is a better way of seeing the abundance because a lot of those filaments you can't see or can be hidden sometimes on the, on the regular wet mount. But when you stain it, things come out that you didn't see before. So I would use that stain to, to judge whether my filaments increase. Got it. Uh, can you hurry up the drying process by putting it over a no, heat source? You don't want to cook them. They're proteins. They're, you know, proteins and heat denatures proteins and it kind of destroys structure. So you want to let it air dry. You know, if you, if you need mm -hmm. to put it in the sun, if you just like in the window or something like that, fine. But don't over a flame and you know, all that kind of stuff. Just set it aside, let it dry, and then do your stain in the afternoon. And the good thing about that is that you can just set them aside, stain them later, and look at them later when you have time. Then that way you can you can save maybe all your stain slides for for one particular day when you when we don't have much to do. So you don't they don't have to be looked at right away, but the live sample should be looked at right away. If I'm doing the, the live sample, how long should I hold it? Because you'll you'll grab a sample and then there's a chlorine delivery or <laughs> a pipe goes down or someone has a meeting, you know. How long can I hold it if I well, you know, have that liquid sample? Personally, if I'm not gonna look at it within fifteen minutes then I wouldn't do it unless if I know something comes up, I would take my sample and you can put it in the refrigerator, mm -hmm. you know, for maybe about an hour, two at the most, and then take it out and look at it after that. But then the problem is when you go tomorrow, if you didn't sit in the refrigerator two hours like you did the one before, then you're not comparing apples to apples. So what I would do is if something happens and I'm in the middle, I would just stop. And then I'd go grab my sample and do it over. That technically, that's the best way to do it. Well, and and I always recommend putting notes. Like if you had <laughs> to do something different mm -hmm. for who knows what reason, put that in the notes. Yeah, exactly. So at least if you you start trending and then you see a dip that day, you can say, okay, well, this was the day that uh I let it sit for two hours. You know, and then you can, that's an outlier. Uh, it's just like any other kind of equipment change or whatever mm -hmm. in the system. Mm -hmm. Just make a note of it. Mm -hmm. And then certain parts of it, so, you know, the, it's the living, the running around living uh, protozoa, metazoa, and that kind of thing that, that changes more. But like your filaments, that's not going to change that much. So you can still, you know, look at those. I, I think just like you said, the best thing to do is to take note and just make sure you note that you had to put in the refrigerator for a couple hours. Well, I, I was talking to an r &E person. They're like, oh, we'll just freeze the sample. I'm like, uh, no. no. <laughs> no. That, that, that won't work. <laughs> Definitely not freeze it. Yeah. I, I've had people send me, ship me samples and uh, they, they put the sample in a pipette and then burn the end of it. And so it's this pipette and then it's 95 degrees and then it travels from across the state and then by the time I get it it's like cooked and melted and it's like no that's important if you are shipping out <laughs> samples to to you know pack them in ice or insulate them against the cold and ship them overnight mm -hmm. yeah shipping overnight big mm -hmm. difference because mm -hmm. uh you know we're, we're getting up to 100 
10 plus for 50 days now this summer. And that changes everything when you're dealing with the microbiology and shipping it. And you, you've got the cold. So. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, not, not anymore. I bought a house in Florida. So now I'm going to go down there when it's this hot. Nice. <laughs> when it gets cold here. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, we've covered a lot, but yeah. um, say someone wants to, to, they're doing everything and they, they get a little money. What kind of uh, microscope would you recommend they spend money on? Because they, they've got some really sexy stuff out there for you to look at your stuff with, like cameras, recording, computer software, trending. Like, you know, if they, they have a little extra money, what should they invest in? Well, like I said, just make sure you have phase contrast. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't recommend one brand over the other because phase contrast is phase contrast, you know, and the magnification is the same. So just just make sure you have those basic things like phase contrast and those basic objectives. And it, it's you, know, uh, you make sure you have two eyepieces, not just a monocular, but you want a binocular that makes it a lot easier on your eyes. And then it's yeah, really if you can get a simple one that has a simple program that you just put your CD inside your uh, laptop and then you can see stuff on your laptop. I, I'd recommend that. A lot of I've seen a lot of operators with that little tiny screen on the top. You you just don't see a lot of detail from that. You can see stuff moving, but you don't see a lot of detail. So, in most cases, I don't recommend that. But I recommend the ones that come with a software that you can put on your laptop, and that way at least you can see it the size of your of your laptop screen. And those are pretty cool. I mm -hmm. I have to say those are pretty darn cool when you can see it blown up, mm -hmm. and you can. Like uh, I've even seen it. I say I've even seen it for lagoons too. Right, and you can take pictures. You can capture it. You can make movies. Well, maybe not a live action movie, but <laughs> <laughs> why not? You know, and I tried to tell people you you're capturing data that you can take to management above you that right. might not have experience at looking at this every day. Right, right. So you can exactly. say this is what's impacting us, and this is what it makes it look like. Right. And this is what it looked like before. And now this is what we're seeing, you know, yeah. so, you know, there's something wrong. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. Before we go into the tidbit, do you have any other words of advice or lessons learned? Well, I, my, I just strongly recommend that you, it, you know, each operator at least have a microscope and then not, to not be intimidated by it, because the more you use it, the easier it'll get. And that's for anybody. So you, you'll find that once you get used to it, it it'll become second nature. But you got to get started. You got to step out and try it and do it. And just do If you can't do all of this, just pick one thing and do it, you know, but to be consistent. If you can't do it every every day, do it once a week. If you can't do it once a week, do it. Do it I mean, do it once a month. But just start doing something. And the more The more you do it, the better you'll get at it. Yeah. And I, I personally recommend once a week just because so much can change in seven days. Yeah. yeah. I, I I think you should do it according to your sludge age. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, do it according to your sludge age. You know, we some of our plants, the, our large plant, like the 1.2 billion gallon. Oh, gosh, of yes. Plant, that one, <laughs> we didn't have to do that every day. It doesn't change. So we got that sample once a, every two weeks. And then some of the smaller plants we did once a week. So. 
it kind of depends on your sludge age. Would you encourage even lagoon operators to do it? Yes, I would. You know, especially looking at the different types of algae, the the ones you can see the ones that can cause that that causes most of the the, the problems and most of the the algae overgrowth. That's completely different from the good ones that you want. So, that I would recommend they do it also. I do too. I mean, you you should know what's coming in. You should know what's going out. You know, then again, I I'm really enthusiastic about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes life easier. Yeah. Okay. So the uh, one is water tidbit for this today is like I said, we swear we share something unusual, sometimes brilliant. And I was watching a YouTube channel for the British museum and it's called curator's corner and they started talking about japanese manhole covers i had completely forgot about this i as a kid i lived in okinawa japan when we were stationed at kadena when we'd walk to the markets and stuff like that you would you would see the manhole covers mm. and in okinawa they had like little cute ones little fish ones and this was you mm-hmm. know, back in the 80s but it was really cool i was like oh these are really neat you know that's more interesting and then I came back to the U.S. and we're boring. <laughs> <laughs> even if we, we don't, we don't even paint ours any colors most of the time. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And, and so <laughs> I was just like, "Wow, hmm. okay." You know, it, I was young, so I just didn't think anything more of it. But the reason why Japan started doing it was to actually highlight. In the 60s, their new post-war sewer system. Oh. And I thought that was really cool because you know they did it intentionally to make people notice it. And then in the 80s, they actually started having competitions. And I sometimes I think, you know, only in Japan could this take off. <laughs> <A competition>. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know, now they have over 95% of the almost 1800 municipalities in Japan have manhole covered designs and they're specific to their areas. So you could get samurai trees, cherry blossoms. You know, if you have a castle in your municipality, that's what you're going to highlight. They even have Pokemon, which my kids (laughs) would freak on. (laughs) Or they highlight uh, festivals. And they wow. have like 12,000 designs. Wow. You know, and that gives you a sense of pride, too, in what you do. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. Wow. Now, the thing for the, like, all the wastewater operators, though, I think this would really go over well, is that they have a manhole cover summit. And they have collectible <laughs> trading cards. Oh, <laughs> get out of here. No, they really do. And, uh, when I, and when I posted something about it on LinkedIn, there were different operators who sent me pictures of the ones that they had seen in Japan. I mean, this is, this is something that is a thing. I see, I I see, you know what I told my husband when I told him I was going to put film, I mean, uh, microorganisms on coffee cups and sell them. He thought nobody will buy that. See, see, I told him that there's a market for this kind of stuff. There is. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just the poop emoji anymore. Uh, No, it's not. You know, and what's what's even crazier now is that they have lighted ones that have video imagery on it. So they'll put like game people. I mean, like it's over the top, oh, wow. but it's now tourist attraction as well. Mm. Now, here in the U.S., you would you would never think of doing that. <laughs> 
But I'm like, you know, if you had some place like Vegas or Chicago or something, you know, you think Pokemon Go is big. We can make this big, too, here in the U.S., I think. Yeah, uh, yeah well, I can imagine it, the traffic in Chicago stopping to look at a manhole and it ran over or something. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're not paying attention, you're like, crap, what did it run over? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it'd be a, a total cultural shift, but I think it would be yeah. fun. I think so. Yeah. Wow. I haven't quite decided what I'd put on mine, but, you know, hey. I'd have a water bear. Oh, yeah. I'd have a water bear. Yeah. Water bears forever. Yeah, water bears. Water bears rock. Yes. (laughs) That's what my t-shirt says. Water bears rock. Okay, then you're going to have to send me the link for that one because I need a shirt like that. I got the shoes, too. Water bear shoes. Shut the front door. Oh, yeah. Water bear house shoes. Yeah, just like blue water bears with the little legs. Uh, okay, we're talking more about this afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's what go okay. on my manhole. <laughs> water bears, awesome. <laughs> I th- I thought I'd put a you know conglomerate, you know, several different kinds of microbes. Yeah, sort of around the water bear, maybe. Yeah, yeah. 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 So we'll get add a little splash and style to them. But think- that's awesome. Yeah. Well. Tony, I am so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, yeah. And we're going to put in the show notes, not only the, the links to the, the different YouTubes and stuff like that, but your, your links will be there as well in the show notes. Okay. We're hoping, you know, if anyone listeners are out there, they'll call you if they have a question or call us with a question. Okay. And we're going to, we'll talk with you soon with Water Break. So thank you for your time. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.